If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Weber is on the board. Will Lerskin is in the cloud. This weekend, I'm going to think about all the things Canadians have in common, rather than our differences. Peace. Peace. Scott I'm coming. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. Uh, I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. You've just been introduced to the rest. Uh, Will Weber on the board with us. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Uh, going to talk extensively about uh, Ukraine today, obviously, because of uh, what is going on. I think what started, um, I don't think too many people thought that... Um, it would go to the extent that it has, although in hindsight, which is always 2020, considering the buildup uh, along the borders of Russia and Ukraine over the last uh, several weeks, uh, I guess it's no surprise. And oddly enough, when uh, the Russian president met with the Chinese president uh, at the Olympics, um, please hold off all of this until the Olympics are over, which is exactly uh, what has happened here. So um, many thought that this was just about a, a couple of breakaway regions uh, that were going to go, and and instead, he, Putin has virtually hit um, every part of uh, Ukraine and is on uh, the steps of the nation's capital uh, at this point. So here's what the Prime Minister had to say, uh, interesting, about life back here, because not only are there lots of Ukraine uh, Canadians, there's lots of Russian Canadians, too. Uh, here's what the Prime Minister had to say about that. And the Ukrainian people, like all people must be free to determine their own future. I want to be clear. Our quarrel is not with the people of Russia. It is with President Putin and Russian leadership that has enabled and supported this further invasion of Ukraine. We are going to use all those tools to make sure that Canada continues to be a good friend to the Ukrainian people, even as they uh, suffer through this horrific and unjustified attack. All right, so that's the Prime Minister uh, speaking uh, to those uh, affected in Canada and, and from both countries that are, that are here and, uh, and obviously the tension that, um, that can exist there. Uh, now it, it seems that uh, uh, the people of Ukraine have been encouraged to take up arms um, and, and fight, and they've been giving out those weapons. Uh, Moscow, oddly enough, there's been people protesting uh, in Moscow, saying that this should not be going on. What are you doing? These are our brothers and sisters uh, and such. And uh, obviously Putin trying to do his best to quell uh, any of that. But uh, at this point, uh, it, it seems to be gaining momentum there. Uh, Belarus uh, certainly looking like the enabler uh, in here. And uh, the world is continuing to speak out against Russia uh, many are preparing for an influx of refugees. These are all angles that we'll, uh, we'll tackle over the course of the afternoon. And now we're also hearing that there's sanctions against Putin himself and uh, all, of, uh, all of his friends that, um, that participate in the same sort of games that he does. 
with putting their money in various uh, parts of uh, of well the world, including the Canadian uh, real estate industry, uh, which is something that you know many people have been saying for years that needs to be looked at. And uh, whether it's on you know in Toronto or on the West Coast, in in no matter who it is from where. So uh, obviously sanctions now against Vladimir Putin and uh, also announcing today that, uh, uh, you know, I guess you do every little bit you can. Uh, LCBO pulling products, uh, Russian products off of uh, the shelf there as a sign of support as well. So uh, lots going on, lots of different angles to this story throughout the course of uh, the afternoon. And obviously, if anything else breaks in towards this at all, uh, we will will, uh, certainly break in for it. Uh, When we return, we're going to talk to a CBS reporter uh, who is in Moscow, Felix Light, and get an an update on what exactly is happening happening as they head into evening there probably around 11 o'clock ish uh their time now and 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 what is in store for them in the next 24 to 48 hours it's all coming up on hamilton today i'm scott thompson let's bring in felix light cbs reporter he is in moscow felix thank you for the time i hope you're doing well uh thank you i'm doing quite all right here i'm a long way from the fighting and that's the main thing uh, what's it like in Moscow, and what's the reaction to what is going on in Ukraine? So, you know what? The main thing is that the Russians are just not getting the same picture of this war. Uh, you know, uh, Russian sort of media is mostly sort of under the control of the Kremlin, under the control of Vladimir Putin. And frankly, what they've been broadcasting today, uh, you know, I have no other word for it. It's a lot of malicious lies, basically, right? They talk not about an invasion, but about a special operation to sort of to protect Russian-speaking people uh, in parts of eastern Ukraine. They do not show on TV here the pictures of sort of Kiev and these big cities being bombed. Uh, you know, we're not sort of, the Russian people are not given the full picture. But at the same time, what we have seen is some people sort of coming out, protesting, taking to the streets, a mix of sort of the young people in the big cities, but also sort of celebrities, you know, musicians, sports people. But there is like a pushback to this war. And that actually this is not the sort of the preference of most of the Russian population. The Russians are very split on uh, this war. And it's in some sectors of the population very, very, very unpopular, I think. Uh, Are the protests increasing? We obviously heard that Putin was trying to stamp those out. What, What stage are they at? Yeah, well, you know, this is Russia. This is not a democracy. You know, this is a sort of a, a tough authoritarian dictatorship. And, you know, frankly, to protest at all is an extraordinary act of bravery in this country. You can lose your job. You can be thrown out of university for doing it. And so what we saw last night was some sort of pretty small protests by the standards of any other country. And we're seeing, we're seeing the same thing sort of continuing today. I wouldn't expect a sort of a mass sort of wave of protest. But it does show how, how keenly people feel and how upset people are about this war in Ukraine. I had one expert say to me, uh, obviously, uh, Russian is much more, Russia is much more fortified for this than what the uh, Ukraine is. That being said, if they put up some sort of fight and Russian soldiers start coming back in body bags, that may change the conversation in Russia. Is, is that accurate? Is that naive? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I honestly think, you know, looking at the way this is, uh, has sort of played out, uh, the Russian government, Vladimir Putin, had convinced themselves somehow that sort of Russian soldiers would be greeted as liberators in Ukraine. You know, they'd go in and the Ukrainian army would just fall apart. But that absolutely has not happened. You know, if we look at some sort of not totally uncredible estimates, the Russians have already lost in 36 hours almost as many troops as uh, 
as the Americans lost in two decades in Iraq. You know, this is a ferocious defense that's being put up here. And I think it will only get more bloody for the Russians and for the Ukrainians, of course. Uh, and that will have an impact. You know, uh, people don't want to see sort of body bags coming home and, and, and in zinc coffins. But that is what is going to happen in Russia. And, you know, people who are already not happy about the fact that Russia is waging a war with um, on Ukraine, you know, a country they see as very sort of culturally and historically close are going to get even more upset about this. So I do think that's a huge problem down the line for Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin. What about those um, those living in Ukraine, those living in Russia? We've heard that, you know, some do not like each other. We heard that, hey, you're killing our brothers and sisters. What is the relationship like between the civilians of these two countries, the citizenry? This would be like the U.S. and Canada going to war. You know, this is two mm. countries sort of that are, that are bound by a very deep sort of uh, history and that have always just sort of coexisted together, that are very culturally close and have a lot of common links, right? You know, my, a, good, a good colleague of mine is right down on the border watching Russian, uh, uh, Russian artillery fire into Ukraine. Her cousins live in Ukraine. She is half Ukrainian. You know, this is, this is such an extraordinarily sort of uh, bleak story because there are so many human stories that go across the two sides of the border. And so when people talk about this, this isn't just another country. This is about a country that's, you know, uniquely close. And this is why so many people are so upset, I think, here in Russia about this war with Ukraine. Uh, many have said or some have said the longer this goes, the worse it is for Putin. Would that be accurate? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, the longer it goes, the more it becomes apparent to the people that Putin has inflicted a, a pointless, unnecessary, uh, causeless war on Ukraine and on his own people. You know, there are going to be a lot of young Russian boys coming home, uh, you know, in body bags from this 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 operation. And that, that's it's, it's a tragedy. And that will will inflict itself on the people, uh, you know. Putin might have been relying on the fact, on his sort of idea that Ukraine was just going to capitulate immediately. But I don't think this is going to be, you know, Ukraine probably won't hold out for that much longer. But even if it does, we can expect years and years and years of guerrilla war in this part of Europe. So Russia has really sort of shot itself in the foot enormously here. We're looking at, I think, some kind of second Afghanistan for Russia right now. It's an extraordinary situation. We've only got about uh, 30 seconds left, Felix. What about sanctions that are, uh, the West is putting against Russia? How much of an impact? And now it's been announced today that uh, Putin specifically has sanctions against him. Well, certainly, I think, you know, they're going to bite. They're going to make their presence felt on the Russian economy. Already, there are basically no flight services with Europe now as a result of these sanctions. So I do think they're going to hit home pretty hard on the Russian middle class. Uh, Felix Light has been with us, CBS reporter in Moscow. Felix, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Much appreciated. Thank Stay you. safe. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly know uh, the uh, pain that the retail sector has been through as a result of, a result of a global pandemic and uh, the the troubles that uh, and, and tribulations of Hudson Bay over the course of the years. Uh, well, now uh, announcing that uh, their signature store at Young and Bluer downtown Toronto is uh, is going to be closed as of this spring. To talk more about all of this, Bruce Winder is with us, retail analyst and author, and is with us now. Bruce, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. So why now? Um, I guess this was, you obviously don't make these decisions uh, overnight, but why are we seeing this happen now? 
Well, I think, you know what, I mean, let, let's face it, a few things have happened. The pandemic happened. It's not quite over yet, hopefully on the way out now. But that uh, took a big toll on the Bay. Um, you know, they, they, they suffered uh, immensely because they were in the category, you know, department stores that took the brunt of it in terms of being closed. They weren't an essential retailer. They don't sell food. Um, and, you know, also they're, they've realized probably that, you know what, two and a half kilometers down the road from the Bay store at Young and Bloor is another Bay store, their flagship down at Queen and Young. And it probably didn't make a lot of sense to have uh, the two mammoth stores so close to each other. Uh, yeah, I misspoke there. So uh, the original store is still there. Uh, is this a real estate issue for them? Do they own one uh, or do they own them? Do they own the property? What's that situation? Yeah, my understanding is they don't own the property. That's what I thought at first, because usually what happens with the Bay is they own a property and they say, hey, I can get more money from monetizing it through real estate than through retail. But my understanding is they were just a tenant at the Young and Bloor uh, location. It is a massive store. And they probably said to themselves, you know what, our sales are at such a low point. It doesn't make sense to pay the bills anymore and to really pay the rent. So let's consolidate our operations. And uh, and I think this is probably something you'll see more from the Bay. Um, th- th- you know, my opinion is they're probably going to end up with just a handful of stores in Canada, you know, one in each major city and maybe two in some of the bigger cities. And, and that's really about it. But certainly they'd be spread out more than being just down the street from each other. Wasn't the whole reason behind this uh, Young and Bluer store because that's where the Eaton Centre once was? Um, yeah, well, the Young and Bloor, um, the Eaton Center um, is, is is a great location. That's down at Dundas and Young. Oh, sorry, Dundas, and, I'm thinking uh, of, sorry. Yeah, no problem. And and when when this thing was built, this store at Young and Bloor in 1974, uh, which is quite a while ago, um, it was a very different department store landscape. You had Simpsons downtown uh, in, the, in the location that the Bay has now at Queen. You had Eaton's, which was a mammoth retailer we all loved. Um, and, and you had Sears kind of around somewhere. So, you know, it was a very different department store segment. And at the time, it probably made sense for them to have their flagship at Young and Bloor. But now that they have the big one down a few streets, it just doesn't make sense anymore. What about online presence, especially during the pandemic for them? Yeah, online presence for everyone accelerated during the pandemic for obvious reasons. Um, and uh, they, they've started to get into this a lot more. They've kind of signaled to everyone that they want to be you know, an online retailer and really have that channel, you know, almost as important as their brick and mortar channel. And they've done some good, uh, they put out some nice ads, which I think are appealing to, to millennials and things uh, to try to grow that business. But that's a tough business, you know, and, and I'm not sure how much of their category is done online and whether people see them as a store of first choice online, right? So I really think they have a little bit of a hill to climb here to kind of redefine themselves. Where do they fit in the marketplace? I honestly see them as more of a niche player now. You know, if you went back 30, 40 years ago, department stores were were what I call mass merchandisers, right? Everything, you know, they yeah. Were, they had everything. And they were, you know, when you got up in the morning on a Saturday, you went to a department store, right? Now, you know, people who are, are spending money um, aren't really thinking about department stores first. They're thinking about either discounters or dollar stores or Amazon, or they're thinking of specialty stores or niche stores. Um, and I think they've lost some of that traction. I think they they failed to really um, communicate with the millennial. And now they're trying to play catch up. And I think they've become more of a niche player now, to be honest, versus a mass market player. Are they catering more to the higher end? 
Well, I think they've tried that about 10, 15 years ago. They brought in uh, Bonnie Brooks, who uh, really did a great job in, in, in a little bit, bit of time with that. They kind of went after Holt Renfrew's business. But, you know, and they've kind of went off that a little bit. They're still trying to do it. But there's a new definition of what high end is now, because you've got their own sister company, Saks. You've got Nordstrom. You've got Simons, you know, and Holt Renfrew hasn't stood still. So, you know, I don't think they can really compete. The other thing that's really hurt them, too, is that a number of these big luxury brands have their own stores now. They don't really, you know, need mm. to be in a bay anymore. They can be they can have their own brick and mortar store and their own on- online capabilities and do business directly and make more money. You know, you think about it, Bruce, uh, you know, for the last two years, a, a lot of people have been working from home. You know, you think of a downtown core in the hustle and the bustle and, exactly. and the retail and the clothing stores and, you know, uh, and anybody who, who does that uh, for a living and, and, and goes back and forth like that, you can spend a fortune on clothes uh, just, yeah. you know, being dressed for the office per se. Now that we've been home for two years, how does that change all of this moving forward? Yeah, I think you bring up a great point, Scott, is that, you know what, uh, during the pandemic and continuing through after the pandemic, uh, people are going to work at home more, you know, particularly white collar folks who might shop at the Bay. They're going to work at home, whether it's two or three days a week, and they just don't need as much clothing as they did before. And they might buy that clothing out where they live instead of where they shop. So, you know, I think it's going to be really tough on folks who have retail downtown. I mean, if you look at in Toronto, we have the path, which is that underground tunnel with all the retailers. Yeah that's been battered because the big banks have been closed, et cetera. So it just really, uh, downtown retail really suffers when there's no people downtown working. How do you explain to the ones that are successful at this point? For example, a Lululemon. Well, they, they have done some things. They've kind of insulated themselves. Lululemon is interesting because they, you know, they were sort of built for this type of new normal as it relates to yoga wear and, and casual clothes and comfortable clothes. So their assortment is perfectly in line with sort of the new normal post pandemic here where people are dressing more comfortable and they have a very strong brand power as well. And they're insulated. They make a lot of money because they own the brand. They're not selling someone else's brand and they've done a really good job managing themselves. They had an amazing online business as well. So it's kind of hit or miss by retailer and who was lucky enough or fortunate enough to have the right stuff at the right time to survive this thing. Good pandemic clothing, I guess. So what about sector copycats here? Uh, And how long does this last post-pandemic? Well, there is some copycats for Lululemon. I'm assuming that's what you mean, like sort of the yoga copycats. Yeah. Um, You know what? It's a flooded market right now. You've got you've got everyone from Walmart to Amazon to you name it getting in the yoga market. Um, the one thing that uh, and and they're going to all do well. Everyone's going to do well, right? This is going to raise all the boats, right? High tide raise all boats. But Lulu will endure because they have a technical uh, design to their product. They have their brand cachet. You know, they're not they're not trading at the same level as the copycats. So copycats will do well, but Lulu will do well for probably a different snack bracket. People who are a little more affluent and don't mind spending $100 on a pair of yoga pants. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, talking about retail in a post-pandemic world and Hudson Bay closing its Young and Bluer location. Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, take care, Scott. Thanks a lot. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Matthew Light, Associate Professor of Criminology and Sociological Studies, uh, uh, Center for, for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Matthew, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. 
Thank you. It's good to be with you. Matthew, as I was just mentioning, we were speaking with a CBS reporter in Moscow just before chatting with you, and they said the story that, uh, or he said the story that they are getting back in um, in Russia is completely different from what is actually happening in Ukraine. That they're getting sold. Uh, it's a story of of uh, liberation, and that uh, Ukraine needs their help as opposed to what's really happening. Uh, your thoughts on that, and 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 how long can they keep that blanket over the people of Russia? Or Moscow? Uh, yes, it's a great question. So at least since the uh, political events of 2013 to 2014, when uh, Ukraine ousted its pro-Russian dictator after he massacred a number of protesters uh, in the central square of Kiev, the, the Russian state media, which is what most people in Russia derive their information from, has kept up a steady drumbeat of um, rather hateful propaganda about Ukraine and its people. Um, so It includes a number of elements that have to do with the history of World War II, alleging that Ukraine is a country of Nazis um, or that it's dominated by neo-Nazis, both of which are, of course, false and outrageous, um, as well as that it is systematically persecuting people who speak the Russian language in Ukraine, which is also false, and that it has been kind of a tyrannical tyrannical ruler of the primarily Russian-speaking areas of Eastern Ukraine and uh, the Crimea that Russia has now either annexed in the case of Crimea or recognized as independent states in the case of the Donbass region. Uh, we have heard that there have been protests in in Moscow. Um, even Boris Yeltsin's daughter reportedly among protesters. Um, is that a movement that's growing? How will Putin handle that? Well, I think I think um, it may have taken him by surprise that that. There have been significant protests in in major cities. Um, it's interesting that um, that this war has elicited at least some level of disapproval among people in Russia. Uh, I think um, it's been clear from the, the the coverage of the war or of the conflict in state media that they don't quite know how to present it. Um, in the in that, um, for most people in Russia, Ukraine is a closely connected neighboring state where a lot of people have uh, family and friends or have even spent part of their lives. And the idea of uh, a war on Ukraine um, is not something that elicits a lot of enthusiasm among most people in Russia. Um, although it's, it's also fair to say that many people have uh, at least superficially accepted the, the government's sort of line about the, the nature of the, U- the Ukrainian government. So I think it's not a good sign for Putin that there have been significant protests, um, particularly given the current political environment in Russia, which is highly repressive and which um, most opposition figures and even independent media and, and civil society leaders have either been imprisoned or left the country. Um, so um, in a way, even if the protests are not huge, the fact that they could take place at all and were substantial um, represents a certain kind of rebuke of Putin. When this first started, many thought it was just about a couple of breakaway regions that, as he said, needed their help. Uh, but obviously, he's now surrounded the capital and is pretty much attacking from from all angles uh, in Ukraine. How do you justify that? How do you explain that to Russians? Well, um, I think you're right to point out the 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 evolution, shall we say, in the, the Kremlin's narrative, right, from 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 initially we need to secure the safety and independence of these two breakaway regions that, that Russia has uh, backed and basically enabled to continue fighting the Ukrainian government for the last eight years to, um, you know, what is openly now described as quote unquote demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine, which um, appears to mean the overthrow of the government of Ukraine and its replacement, replacement by one that is more to Putin's liking. 
So um, as to how you justify that, well, I think, I think that is um, a challenge. Um, many people in Russia, judging by public opinion surveys, do at least to some degree accept the government's claim that it is unacceptable for Ukraine to join or consider joining uh, NATO. Um, given that that hasn't been on the cards recently, um, I do wonder how much uh, opposition might begin to materialize if the war drags on and Putin fails to um, score a, a quick victory. Um, Getting so, as, as with many wars, the, the course of the war will some, to some extent determine the level of opposition. To touch on, we've only got about a minute left here, Matthew, but to touch on what you were talking about earlier, uh, the relationship between the citizenry of both of these countries, whether it, whether it's Russia or or Ukraine. I mean, as you mentioned, some some might maybe not necessarily friends. On the other hand, others will say you're killing our brothers and sisters. So, uh, you know, at what point does this um, does this people start really questioning what's going on here? Um, well, um We'll have to see whether um, the war begins to elicit more mass opposition. Uh, I mean, I think I think it's fair to say that the sort of difficulty of defending the war suggests the problem for the Kremlin. So I, I recently heard the spokeswoman for the Russian foreign minister, ministry, Zakharova, try to argue to the Russian people that um, the people that Russian soldiers would be killing in Ukraine are not really Ukrainians, but are essentially sort of uh, a Western Western puppets who are uh, uh, Nazis or fascists, and um, many people in Russia are sophisticated enough to realize that that's not true. Um, whether there'll be uh, enough of them or they'll be powerful enough to mobilize significant opposition to Putin remains to be seen. Matthew Light with his associate professor, of criminology, sociological studies, uh, Europe, uh, European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, University of Toronto. Matthew, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. My pleasure. Given the positive trends in the public health indicators and the high vaccination rate, we are actively reviewing all directives and instructions to healthcare providers or organizations that were temporarily put in place in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. I know that I signaled my hope that we may be able to do so by March 1st in alignment with the next steps of the province's reopening, but it may take a little longer as we continue to work with the relevant sectors to ensure that there are no gaps in guidance as we look to lift these measures in the near future. Rest assured, this work is underway and will be communicated with sector partners and the public when it's ready. All right, that's Dr. Kieran Moore, Dr. Kieran Moore, Ontario's top doc, talking about masking. Uh, here's what he had to say about the booster shot, especially if you've had it, meaning the virus. Boosters are an effective means of reducing your likelihood of becoming seriously ill from COVID-19, and there's good evidence that vaccination cuts your risk of developing long COVID syndrome in half. Even if you have had COVID in the past, getting vaccinated is still recommended as it provides better protection against future infection. All right, that's Dr. Kieran Moore talking about uh, masking and boosters in his latest uh, news conference, which was uh, late yesterday afternoon. Let's bring in Thomas Tenke, Professor of School of Occupational and Public Health with Ryerson and is with us now. Thomas, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, thanks. Great to be with you. Thank you. So, so let's start with the masks. Um, obviously, uh, uh, the doctor was saying they were hoping at March 1st. What is the deal now in regard to masks and recommendations from the government as of March 1st? Yeah, I, well, I think like like at this stage, I think, you know, they're, they're looking at 
trying to uh, sort of ease back on, on masks in certain situations. But uh, I think we're going to still keep uh, masks in place for, for a, you know, sort of what you'd call sort of a higher risk situations. But, but I think, you know, at this stage, uh, you know, my sense is that, you know, we, masks are still going to be around for, for some time to come. But, but I think we'll be looking at uh, sort of easing them off uh, in, in circumstances where, where we're able to. So, so I think, you know, uh, at this stage, it, it's, it's, again, it's a sort of a, a risk, risk uh, assessment and what, you know, in the higher risk settings, uh, I think they'll still say, you know, keep wearing masks. But, but I think we'll move from more of a masks being a mandate or a requirement to, to being a recommendation. Uh, and obviously, March 1st, that's what's happening with vaccine passports and such. Many thought that, uh, and as Dr. Moore, Moore uh, 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 referred to, that they were hoping to maybe do this at March 1st. They're waiting till later. Do you think this is one of those things they're waiting till after March break? Because by the time you, you know, before you know it, you'll be into the beginning of April and then it's spring again. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like, I think, you know, what, what we're seeing, you know, on all the various metrics that they're they're looking at yeah they're all in the in the sort of the what you know a good trend in regard to a downward trend in regard to uh numbers uh hospitalizations and icu uh cases and and uh you know and also you know the percent positivity for those ones that are getting tested and and you know so, so and uh you know outbreaks in long-term care homes and, and the like so so all the measures are on this sort of downward trend and a you know a very a good downward trend and so so obviously the longer you leave that and if that trend continues then then we're in a better better position the longer you you leave it but but i also realize that you know yeah people are at a point where they uh members of the public are really keen for for things to to be lifted as, as soon as possible so so we yeah definitely have that that sort of trying to balance all that all the various issues so so i think yeah, you know, I think we're going to be moving to, you know, sort of a lot of the things that were mandates are going to really be recommendations in, in the near future. And then it's really right. up to individuals to sort of figure out what what sort of level of risks they're, risk they're, uh, they're happy to accept. Uh, and, and that's going to be based on their own circumstances uh, and the, you know, in regard to health status and, and uh, who, who they interact with and the sort of work that they do. Dr. Moore said that it'll be likely that when they do res- uh, loosen the restrictions for masking in public places, that's also when they will also loosen them uh, for schools. But I can imagine that's still going to be a pretty a pretty contentious debate, Tom. When uh, all of a sudden some kids are allowed to wear masks or aren't allowed, or don't have to wear masks in schools, where others will feel that they will have to once it becomes your choice. Yeah, yeah, it, it's definitely uh, going to be one of those issues where. Where you know, pre, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, if people were wearing a mask on transit or in other situations, people sort of looked at them a little bit funny. And and now we've been wearing them for for you know nearly two years, and and it's sort of you know normal. But uh, yeah. once once you get into that situation where you don't have to wear it, then you know it's it's going to be well, uh, you know, maybe people might be looking at people who are wearing masks a little bit uh, sort of strangely. But but I think you know that's where you know. I would like to think that we sort of, you know, sort of respect people who who feel that they want to still keep wearing them, and and you know, from a public health perspective, uh, wearing a mask uh, is, is is a good idea for not just for for COVID, uh, but for for a range of other respiratory viruses, and and particularly if you if you you know are immunocompromised or, or have other uh, medical conditions that might make you at higher risk, I think that you know 
given where we're at now, it's it's still going to be something that is is uh, I think a good alternative for you know for for the for the foreseeable future. We remember, Tom, uh, it was just a few weeks ago when we realized that Omicron wasn't as bad, uh, although it spread incredibly quickly, it, uh, it wasn't as dangerous. Then all of a sudden on the horizon, they're talking about another variant. Uh, but this variant seems to have petered out. This seems there doesn't seem to be anything at this point uh, that's going to invade Omicron. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, like 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 definitely, you know, as as you know, we move forward, there, there's going to be different uh, variants that we'll sort of start, you know, we'll, we'll see come, come, come forward as, as, as potential variants of concern. But, but, you know, what we've seen in the last, you know, sort of in the last few months is that uh, the, the, the variants are, are, are not, uh, or are in the same sort of category in regard to uh, sort of transmissibility and, and, and infectiousness and, and, and outcomes that in the same vein as, as Omicron. So, so that's all, that's all really good because, you know, the last thing, you know, we were wanting and, you know, the worst case scenario was to sort of have some uh, variant come up that was, was, uh, was, you know, sort of a, a game changer in regard to uh, being as transmissible as Omicron, but, but, uh providing much more severe symptoms so so the good thing is that we're on this trajectory again that uh, that the uh, that the variants that are, are coming coming about are, are, are not you know as easily they're as easily transmitted transmitted but their the symptoms are, are, are relatively mild uh, and so so that's all really good news because it's really in really sort of showing that we're in that sort of that that close to that endemic phase of of the of the of the uh, of the virus, where where we it's really you know we're moving out of the pandemic phase into that sort of ongoing phase of this is now you know something that's just going to keep circulating in the community. And I remember talking to experts way back at the very 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 beginning of this and predicted that yeah it'll probably be about two years before it runs its cycle. Thomas Tenkate with us, professor of School of Occupational and Public Health with Ryerson University. Thomas, always thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, we all know what's happening with Ukraine and Russia invasion and such. Uh, but also uh, Russia known to be one of the leaders when it comes to cyber warfare. And we've already heard that that has been going on in regard to their attack on uh, Ukraine. Uh, but obviously for them, the rest of the world is fair game. What does this mean in a war nowadays? Uh, let's bring in Carmi Levy, tech analyst and journalist. He is with us now. Carmi, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks. You know, Carmi, we've talked many times about cyber warfare and, and how this is the future and such. And I must admit, and I don't know, if maybe it was even you and I that had this discussion, but it seemed almost bizarre to see these tanks rolling across the countryside uh, and then eventually into a city. It's like I'm watching a movie out of World War II. Um, are, are you surprised that we're even seeing military action and we just don't see more cyber warfare? Or has, is it just not that advanced yet? I'm actually surprised that we're still seeing as much on social media, as much video and footage coming out of the conflict zone, out of Ukraine, as we are. Because usually the first thing that a tyrannical invader will do is try to cut off communication. It's a lot easier to engage in human rights abuses and to do what you want to do militarily if the world isn't watching. So the first thing you want to do is get rid of the Internet. 
Um, so that hasn't happened yet. We're seeing some signs that uh, those those attacks, those cyber attacks are ramping up. We've seen uh, distributed denial of service or DDoS attacks on Ukraine government websites. We've also seen some internet service providers uh, either go dark or have certain outages. And I expect those to spread over the coming days. Uh, but it's 2022 and uh, the, the world is highly connected. Ukraine is a highly uh, connected country, uh, very uh, dense telecommunications networks. So if Russia wants to take those down uh, and cut them off electronically from the rest of the world, uh, that's going to be a pretty big job. And there are a lot of really resourceful people, both within Ukraine and outside, who are who have stepped forward to help the people of Ukraine make sure that their stories continue to be shared with the world and the technology links to the outside world stay alive. We were talking to a reporter from CBS who was actually in Moscow, and I was asking him what the reaction is in Russia to what is going on uh, in Ukraine. And he said that what they're seeing because of Russian state-controlled media is a completely different story than what the rest of the world is seeing. This is being sold to Russia and those in Moscow as a liberation as opposed to an invasion. Uh, that being said, we are seeing protests that are uh, in Moscow. Can they can they control the internet as well, or have they? Well, there's only so much that you can do. It's, and it's this kind of never-ending battle, cat and mouse battle, between an authoritarian government that in decades past used its uh, absolute control of communications networks to exert its will on the people. Uh, and then you have an increasingly tech-savvy population that doesn't always agree with what the government is trying to do. And so uh, even with individuals within Russia, there are those who are uh, going underground using their knowledge of technology to ensure that the government does not control their narrative, does not control their technology, their telecommunications. And so, you know, back when this was the Soviet Union, they had absolute control uh, and the population essentially was fed what the government wanted them to hear. 2022, is a very different world. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, the, the flickering light of uh, democracy, freedom, and what is right uh, has not been completely extinguished thanks to the internet, mobile technology, social media uh, that continues to, to, to burn fairly bright under the, you know, the umbrella of uh, an oppressive military operation. We know that Western allies have obviously uh, imposed uh, severe uh, sanctions, uh, even on Putin himself. Does this now mm. open up all of those other nations to cyber warfare from Russia? It certainly does. I, it's almost akin to poking the bear. Uh, you know, in you know, if you are, you know, if Canada, for example, has imposed sanctions, they're sending uh, military personnel, equipment to tertiary regions, and so you know, Putin basically sees things in terms of black and white. You're either with us or against us, and if we are uh, helping Ukraine here, then you know, we raise our risk profile. We are increasingly on Russia's radar as they continue to go pedal to the metal on cyber attacks, not only in Ukraine, but around the world. So I think the right thing to do is assume that we are uh, being targeted, we'll continue to be targeted, that risk will accelerate in the days and weeks to come, and that we, you know, as a country, uh, as uh, companies that we work both for and with, and as well as as individuals, uh, we need to take a look at our own uh, digital exposure, so to speak, and make sure that we are doing everything we can to hunker down, lie low, and be as safe and secure as possible, because uh, whether we like it or not, a storm is coming and it is going to hit Canada.
You talked about the shining light uh, trying to get the information through to these countries. Um, Russia, and as you mentioned, it's not the old Soviet Union. It's not China. Uh, so there are leaks there. Do you think, uh, and, and many have said this is a war of opinion, and there's lots of Russians that are very split on whether this was a good idea or not, and as I mentioned, obviously being sold a different uh, bill of goods. Do you think uh, Putin can keep the lid on this? Or, um, and again, not China, will it be a different scenario in Moscow trying to keep a lid on this? I think Putin would like to keep a lid on it, but, you know, the technology has advanced to the point that there's no way for, you know, absolute central authoritarian control over technology and access. Uh, That ship has sailed. uh, And that's why you're seeing protests in certain cities. That's why you're seeing any kind of debate at all among the Russian populace is that uh, they cannot be absolutely fully suppressed uh, when it comes to distribution of the right information uh, that people need to make the right decisions. So, um, you know, this is it's an authoritarian regime wrestling with global technology and you know i'm just naive enough to believe the technology is going to win this one it's an ugly battle back and forth uh but you know smart people working out of garages and basements and you know in the shadows uh in russia and beyond um are doing the right thing uh and uh, a government can only cover so much ground only got a few seconds left. We remember the uh, colonial pipeline in the United States, which was shut down. Obviously, energy is a, a trump card here, no pun intended. Do you think we'll see something like this in the future against energy situa- uh, ener- uh, energy infrastructure in the U.S. or Canada? I think we can expect it. Uh, certainly the colonial pipeline, the JBS meatpacking, the infrastructure, utility targeting attacks, ransomware attacks that we saw last year, uh, those were test cases. Um, and it's kind of opened up a terrifying new chapter uh, in cyber warfare, much of it prosecuted by Russia. And I think we can expect that curve to con- continue to steepen. It's frightening, but at the same time, again, if we pay more attention to our defensive posture, we go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to live despite what Vladimir Putin you know, wants to unleash both in you know militarily as well as digitally. Tech analyst and journalist Carmi Levy with us. Carmi, always fascinating. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Appreciate being here, Scott. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. And my goodness, as long as I've been talking to this man, he has pretty much predicted uh, what we have seen happen. And now, as the rest of the world becomes dependent on dictators and oligarchs to buy their dirty oil, well, Canada shuts the tap off uh, and doesn't see beyond the nose uh, of its face. Dan McTagg is with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yeah, well, interesting day. Uh, getting their message across seems to be tough, but uh, some media are actually yeah. now starting to uh, pay attention. Present uh, company uh, ex- uh, excluded, of course. Uh, uh, you on you know, Dan, you know, I, I saw on CTV News today, Christian uh, Leprec from the Royal Military College and Queen's University, uh, who we've had on quite a bit in regard to the Russian-Ukraine uh, thing and is very prolific on all of this. And he was asked right out what Canada can do. And my goodness, Dan, I have never heard it any better put than what Christian Leprec from Queen's University said. He just came right out and said, build some pipelines. 
Um, and he went on to a, a spiel about how we become dependent on this dirty oil from foreign leaders that control this, and now we're monopolizing the world with it. And he went on to say that they should be building, Canada should be finishing the one the Keystone down to the States, and not only to the West, but also to the East. And he went on with this and actually said it's the woke left that has enabled these dictators to hold the world by the throat because they're the only ones producing any energy and it's way dirtier than anything we have. Is this finally coming home to roost, Dan? I think it is. Uh, I think it's pretty clear to people, especially those who have now realized how much they're spending for energy right now without anything to show for it, uh, that it's the financiers, the, the Mark Carneys of this world, the green proposals in uh, that have gone over the past 30 years to kill nuclear, to kill oil, to kill coal, to kill fracking. All of these things really amount to one thing. The Greens have brought the war to Ukraine and they've enabled Vladimir Putin to achieve a dream that he could have only possibly imagined in his fondest memories because of his days in in Russia as a a KGB agent. We have enabled a man to and gave him power because we're too damn busy navel gazing about our God given gift of resources, which is a a bounty to the world and a bounty to every Canadian. So now that we're looking at $1.60 for a liter of gasoline or natural gas prices are going through the roof, and now we have Putin potentially threatening not only the Ukraine, crushing a democracy, but now all the Latvian states, uh, the the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and now Poland, you know, he has felt that he can do no harm. He's called our bluff. And all we can do, and I'm looking at the prime minister right now, is come back with more mealy mouth ideas on sanctioning the odd person. Get a grip, guys. Sanction the oil and gas sector in Russia. Go after the bankers who supply it. Stop using natural gas from Russia. Stop using oil from Russia. Don't allow Russia to go through Canadian waters uh, to get their oil to the United States. And certainly don't buy half a billion dollars worth of Russian oil as we did last year or the last year for which these things were recorded. So all said and done, that's the way I think you proceed. And I've said as much on many, many media already today, including, of course, uh, uh, the one you had mentioned uh, where uh, Mr. Leprac showed, uh, had made his comments. Uh, the Prime Minister having holding a news conference now in regard to more sanctions and has his Mr. Scary face on again. Uh, the green uh, environmentalists th- that are on the extreme, uh, the, as much as the extreme as they say the far right is on, they all say, well, that's all the reason we should be going green and we should have done it sooner. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, except that it doesn't matter how much green you have. The reality is that when the wind doesn't blow and the windmills don't turn and there's no sun, you got no bloody energy. Give your bloody heads a shake, unless, of course, it's rattling when you do it. But if you're that kind of if you're that dense when someone makes that kind of a comment, frankly, it's scary that you should be in government or making any decisions. If you think so little of our energy sector and the things that have made us unique as a country and provide an abundance of wealth, as well as clean options for Canadians and clean options for uh, Americans and those who've used our products over the years, then perhaps you should just live on some faraway island and just leave the rest of us alone. Because frankly, a very small group of green grifters who will not declare how they're paid, who will not declare which charity is giving them tens of millions of dollars, who continuously come back and try to find politicians who will bend to their ideas. I think we need to finally put these people where they belong, and that's to ignore them. They are on the far extreme left. They live in a world of magic and make-believe. 
And that's perhaps where they ought to be consigned, at least for the next 20 to 30 years, so we can actually address something that none of us saw coming, and that was uh, the eradication of world and global security. So I remember asking you years ago, is that it? Um, you know, after every pipeline's canceled, are we ever going to see another pipeline built in Canada? Is it too late to change this? Can we fix this? It's never too late, but it's going to take perhaps even more examples of how Russia's prepared to play the game along with China and a few others for Canadians, at least on the far left, to realize uh, that the country cannot afford to go down this road of denying itself and denying the world of the things that would make us stronger, more united, and provide us with energy security. And security doesn't just mean having enough oil and gasoline when you need it. It means having the ability, the flexibility, the attractiveness. It has the ability to help grow the economy, sustain jobs of the present, of the future, and of course, demonstrating what it's done in the past, uh, give us the opportunity to push back on would-be demagogues who are doing and planning the very same thing that Vladimir Putin is doing. This has been in the works for some time. Make no mistake, the Chinas of this world would love to emulate that. And that's probably whatever happens, whatever comes out of this, China is looking very clearly with covetous eyes to the same thing on Taiwan. And now, to me, if we are not prepared to be decisive now, or in the very, very near future, and we see the kind of piddly remarks from our Prime Minister and Joe Biden yesterday, which had the effect of basically saying, we surrender, we still need your 600,000 barrels a day because we're not producing enough of in our, in our own country, then you can expect that China is, uh, is uh, gearing up to do the same thing to Taiwan that, of course, uh, the Ukraine is suffering at the hands of Vladimir Putin. So all I can say is, thank you, Europe. Thank you, America. Thanks to everybody who's bought Russian products. You've just funded this war against the Ukrainian people and democracy. Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, talking about uh, how energy plays a role in what we're seeing in the conflict along uh, Ukraine and Russia's border. Uh, Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Great. Have a great weekend. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's try to better understand Russia and its relationship or lack thereof with Ukraine. Let's bring in uh, Gregor Kreintz, associate professor with the Department of History at Brock University, expert on war, genocide and military occupations, and is with us now. Gregor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, interesting uh, point here that uh, my producer has said that uh, that you have, uh, this is one of your thoughts, the Russian view of the world is not our view. It doesn't view the principles that we think we all, uh, that we all agree on, like sovereignty, the same as we do. Uh, what is the Russian view? What, what are we missing here? Well, I mean, when, I, when we talk about sovereignty, we're talking about the sovereignty really of Ukraine here, that they have... Differing views of that. I mean, uh, you, you saw that in, in Putin's amazing uh, speech on Monday uh, on Monday evening. Amazing, uh, not an amazing sense, but an amazing in, in, in some of the, just some of the, the history that he, he 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 wanders through in his attempt to essentially delegitimize Ukraine as a as a people and as a country. And he really sees uh, Ukrainians, and he says an opening line of his speech and. When he said that Ukraine was essentially part of Russia since time immemorial, and um, so that's part of his um, part of his plan, his rhetorical plan, to basically say that Ukraine was never really uh, a country, never had a, a history of statehood. It was a product of the 
of the Bolsheviks uh, after the revolution. Uh, and then when they became independent in 1991, uh, essentially, um, you know, over time, they've become a colony of the West, but they're, but they're, not, a, they're not a real state. And it's within the Russian prerogative to, to move into this region uh, if Russia believes that it is moving in a direction that is threatening to Russian sovereignty. Um, and that uh, Russia has the right uh, to, to intervene and bring Ukraine back into the proper Russian fold. What is the relationship like between the people of Russia and the people of Ukraine? I mean, I've heard some say they're enemies, some say they're brothers and sisters. We're killing each other's brothers and sisters. What is the relationship like? Well, this is it. I mean, I mean, Russian Ukrainians have been part of the, until, until, until the night, until the night. 1991, when the Soviet Union collapses, I mean, they're part of the same state. I mean, not all of Ukraine. So this is where you get that kind of West Eastern schism. Yeah. Parts of Western Ukraine were, were, was part of the uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and then interwar Poland. Uh, and they had a kind of a different historical development. But at least for Central and Eastern Ukraine, I mean, it was part of the Russian Empire, then part of the Soviet Empire. So they have a long history uh, in which they're uh, cooperating um, you know, and so this this play by Putin, like, I, I wonder how it's going to really work its way through. I mean, he's really been trying hard in the media uh, to say that what Ukraine is doing and, and it's it's neo-Nazi drug addict government, as he called it this morning, uh, is is essentially, um, you know, trying to attack Russians, drive a wedge between Ukrainians and Russians. And um, the problem is he, he, he he's launched an offensive war, and it really will take uh, some propaganda gymnastics in order to convince all Russians that, 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 that this war is justified. And certainly in the case of Ukrainians, especially those Ukrainians who might have been sitting on the fence when it came to how they identify themselves, when you have missiles flying over your head and tanks rolling, Russian tanks rolling through the countryside and through your cities, you know, you got to pick a side. So if anything, this will end up radicalizing Ukrainians and Russians, and, and they may actually create wedges that intentions that perhaps were not there or were not at the same level of animosity before. Uh, we were talking to a CBS reporter actually in Moscow earlier on in the afternoon, and they were saying he was saying that the message that is being sent by state media in Moscow is completely different than what's happening in the rest of the world. They're selling it to Russians like it's a liberation, they need us, and we're going in to save the day as opposed to an invasion. Are you surprised that you know at the beginning of this, uh, Putin said it was you know it was about a couple of breakaway regions. Now he's pretty much well, he's outside the steps of the capital. So are you surprised this went from a couple? of breakaway regions to a full takeover i mean th- this is it i mean i mean surprising surprising no in the sense that uh when yeah. you when you when you move in 140,000 troops into a breakaway region are you all are you there to to defend this region or no i mean obviously they had they had bigger plans and but of course the other thing about ukraine uh unlike the baltic states and hopefully it'll stay that way is that ukraine has basically been signed off by the west i mean they don't want to get involved these are two the U.S. and and the U.S.-led NATO alliance and and Russia are nuclear states. They do not want to start a shooting war. So the you know the U.S. has basically said we're 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 not going to get involved in direct fighting in Ukraine. So this has given an opportunity for Putin to make this kind of uh, this attempt at at bringing Ukraine to heel. 
uh, and he sees it as an opportune moment to, to do this. Uh, that's his gamble. Whether it works out, I guess we'll see how this this invasion and this eventual occupation worked their way out. But um, uh, but but I, I wasn't really surprised. I mean, it, it seemed to be going in, in that in that in that direction over the last certainly over the last few weeks. And if you follow the rhetoric. Uh, of of Putin over time, especially since 2014 and the invasion of Crimea uh, and the Russian intervention uh, in the breakaway regions, it seemed clear that uh, he he had his sights on Ukraine. That Ukraine really had to um, submit itself to Russia or else, and perhaps this is the or else. Gregor Kreintz with us, Associate Professor, Department of History, Brock University, talking about the history of Russia and Ukraine. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. We certainly know what's going on in uh, the in Ukraine and the Russia invasion. Obviously, the West uh, coming back with severe sanctions. The Prime Minister just on TV talking about more uh, sanctions, including in, in involving personally uh, Vladimir Putin. But what is the economic fallout of all of this? Let's bring in Eric Cam, Professor of Macroeconomics, Monetary Economics, International Monetary Economics at Ryerson University, and is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I hope you are as well. Yes, thanks so much. Uh, when this first started, it was about a couple of breakaway regions that were uh, asking for Russia's help, so they say. And now this has turned into pretty much a full-blown uh, invasion of Ukraine with them sitting, uh, Russian troops sitting on the steps of, of the capital. What is the economic fallout of the sanctions that are being put forward and, and, and just this sort of conflict in the world? Well, the economic uh, impact is going to be huge, uh, and in a word, negative. I mean, I, I tried to divide this up today when I was thinking about it to sort of what what do we know, and then what what do we think? And so, what do we know? Well, I mean, global unrest at its best is going to scare consumers, and when consumers get scared, it prompts them to reduce their spending. So. Um, that's going to reduce overall economic activity. And if heaven forbid this thing gets severe, um, what's going to happen then is not only is economic activity going to slow down, but it's going to make it much harder for the Fed in the States or the Bank of Canada. Um, as you know, they've been planning to raise interest rates to try to fight inflation. But with all the uncertainty out there in the world, they don't know when and they don't know how aggressively um, to attack borrowing costs. So that that hurts uh, us as a country. The magnitude of the fallout, well, it's unclear, but we know this for a fact. It's going to delay any return to normalcy after the last two and a half years that Mm. the pandemic has thrown everything for a loop. And then finally, a lot of consumers in America, in Canada and abroad, they're already contending with these quickly rising prices. And businesses are trying to navigate already choked off supply chains. And you can rest assured this is going to make it worse. So really, it's an overall pessimistic feeling about an economic and a financial outlook, despite the fact that if you look at gross domestic product, it's deceiving because it's been going up over the last couple of months. But we can talk about in a second what I think is going to happen. And that, frankly, is just going to make the matter worse. What about energy in all of this, Eric? Because obviously Russia is sitting on a lot of it. They're using that as a as leverage with the rest of Europe and such. Uh, interesting headline in the Financial Post today. Uh, Ukraine crisis puts East Coast LNG back on the map. What does that mean? It means that we're in big trouble. 
That's what it means. You can use whatever acronym you want. There's going to be dizzying, dizzying spikes in prices for energy and for food. So if you want to look at energy, since you brought it up, oil prices, as you know, if you've been to the gas station, already the, are already the highest they've ever been. And Russia is, a, is the third largest producer of oil in the world. One out of every 10 barrels of oil comes from Russia. So imagine reducing that supply. And then if that's not bad enough, you, you want to continue on this energy path, let's talk about natural gas. Europe gets nearly 40% of its natural gas from Russia. So imagine just turning off that supply chain, what it's going to do to heating bills. So energy prices are going to go through the roof. Um, in terms of food, people like to eat, I'm told. Russia is the world's largest supplier of wheat. Um, and so what about the export of wheat if it gets if it gets cut off? Just to give you examples, I was pulling today, Egypt and Turkey, they look at Russia for 70% of the imports for their um, grains and other foods. So, you know, then, then we look at precious metals. Um, those prices are going to soar up because Russia's, uh, especially things like nickel and palladium, world's largest um, exporter is Russia. And then if you want to just kind of sum this up, into where we're going, global banks, the global financial system, they're just bracing. They're just bracing for the effects of these sanctions because they know whether you denominate in dollars or euros or any other currencies, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be uncertainty. So I guess my long answer to your short question is nothing good is going to come of this. Does this change Canada's position on energy? Uh, many have said that uh, Canada could be supplying some of that liquid natural gas if we only had pipelines and such. Uh, we know what our energy policy has been of late. Does this, you see this changing, those policies? I wish that I did. I mean, I, you know, when I talk to Roy Green, who you know well, and he's been trumpeting, as I have, that Canada could be doing a lot more with its energy sector because we have a specialization in our resources. But we don't tend to take advantage of those things. So your question is good, but I have to bifurcate the answer, which is, could we fill in some of the gaps left by this conflict? Yes. Do I think we will fill in the gaps left by this conflict? Frankly, there's no evidence to say we will, but I hope that I'm wrong. What does Russia get out of all of this? Do you think Putin has bit off more than he can chew? Do you think this uh, has been received as he thought it would be? I don't think he gives a damn how it's mm. received. And I'm not an expert in international relations or international politics. But the fact that I was the shortest kid in my elementary school class means I know what it's like to be bullied. And I think that Putin is a bully and I think he's bullying the world right now. And I wish he cared. But again, to what evidence? So we're just going to have to see how this plays out. And while I don't know anything about international relations, I know a little bit about economics. And there's nothing, nothing good comes from global, global conflict. Getting back to sanctions, um, there was chatter that because it, it appears that China and Russia have a, a new relationship as of the Olympics and that China was going to help ease some of the stress from those sanctions. Is that enough for them? Uh, it's a pretty good start. China is a very big, powerful nation. And if they come in and try to play that role, then it does become a game changer. And so I don't like to waffle on any of your questions, but the reality is 
if China comes in, if this lasts for a prolonged period of time. I mean, you know, we've got to kind of take these things as as they come. Will China fill in the gaps? I actually think that that they will to some extent, but we have to see to what extent before we can say what it's going to do to the global picture. Do you think this could end up being a positive? Uh, it makes countries realize what they need to be more self-sufficient, uh, the world order, the direction it's going in. Uh, is there anything positive to come out of this, do you see, Eric? I don't see anything positive in terms of world financial or economic markets. But you're talking about, is there an ex- a negative externality to come out of this where countries say, you know what, we better start buying and selling our own commodities. And yeah. yeah. Um, But you know what? It shouldn't have taken this. I mean, we've just gone through two and a half years where we should have learned very quickly that if we don't start buying our own commodities and if we don't start trading across provinces better than we do, we're just going to get into worse shape. So you know what? Sure. You you just said the glass is half full. I'll give you that half fullness. Okay, Eric Cam with us, Professor Macroeconomics, Monetary Economics, International Monetary Economics with Ryerson University, talking about the fallout of sanctions and the conflict with Russia and Ukraine. Eric, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Stay healthy. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, talking about, uh, and congratulations to everyone who won Rod Stewart tickets. Uh, That's it for the week. Uh, Hopefully we'll have some more uh, coming up soon. All right, uh, obviously talking about the situation in uh, Ukraine and Russia invading and and going beyond the borders. Thought it was initially just a uh, couple of breakaway regions. Now it looks like it's a complete takeover. Uh, and as the world is piling up sanctions against Russia, uh, China has said that they'll ease whatever uh, or do whatever they can do to ease the pain of those sanctions. What is the relationship between China and Russia? Let's bring in Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute and professor of political science, University of Alberta. And with us now, Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. So what is the relationship like between Russia and China? We saw uh, during the uh, Beijing Games, the Olympics, a photo op between the two presidents. They had signed a deal. Uh, there's a pipeline and such in the works and such. What What is the relationship like between these two? Well, it's complex. It's got really complex historical roots. Um, China still believes, many Chinese still believe that Russia holds territory that belongs to them in, in Siberia um, during the, when both capitals had full communist systems, uh, they were often at dagger points. There was fighting even on the border at one point. Um, but increasingly, particularly under Xi Jinping, there's been a sort of meeting of the minds on shared interests. These are not allies, uh, but they are friends. Uh, there are some wariness, I think, in terms of China, for example, not wanting to get dragged too deeply into Russia's various military adventures. This is not the first one. Uh, on the other hand, uh, having a re- friendly regime that runs along thousands of kilometers of the Chinese border is a big plus. They also get weapon systems from Russia that are very high quality. Uh, Russian defense industry is first rate. China buys, borrows, copies those, and it strengthens their own. So there's a, a range of issues where they see eye to eye. And right now, uh, they're closer than they've been um, in many, many years, perhaps ever. What about China's position on what is happening with the Ukraine invasion? Do they want this to, to escalate? Do they, do they want it to, to simmer down? My guess, and, and of course you'd have to be able to see inside the mind of the minds of the Politburo members and, and Xi Jinping and also Putin, 
Um, and so I can only speculate, but um, I'm not convinced that China welcomes this war. Uh, China's long-term strategy, which has been the case beginning with Deng Xiaoping, has been to um, keep fairly low profile until fairly recently, to build, have international calm, open markets for Chinese exports, and to build their strength uh, for down the road. I think the last thing they want is a general European war. Um, and I think even this war makes them nervous as we are. On the other hand, Putin is a crucial friend. Uh, he came to the uh, to Beijing around the time of the opening Olympics, I think to some extent to forewarn China, maybe not in detail, but uh, to talk Turkey about uh, Eastern Europe and a, a range of other issues. And China is providing with some help. They're facilitating Russian grain exports now in ways that was not the case uh, even a few weeks ago. So I think it's a, a, a cautious um, marriage of convenience. How concerned should we be in the West of that? Could, this com could they combine for a superpower? Well, I think China is getting close to that status anyway. Um, they're maybe not quite there in terms of quality of their armed forces or not quite in terms of the, all the dimensions of the economy as the United States. But I think there, is going, there are going to be two superpowers on this planet, U.S. being one and China one. Russia's days as a superpower, superpower over, I believe, their economy, at least prior to $100 barrel oil, was no larger than Canada's, even though they've got a first-class military. I think it's rather that Russia provides China with strategic space, uh, is the junior partner uh, in that relationship. Russia, that is, is the junior partner. And I think it brings a lot of things to the table uh, for China. Oil supplies, gas supplies, um, timber, uh, and that that buffer zone that's huge, extending all the way to Europe. Uh, so I think that that's, it's more a senior partner, a junior partner. I find it hard to imagine them combining to form a single state, but NATO is not a single state either. You can have coordination, as happened with the Allies during World War II, between countries that still have their sovereignty and their own militaries. I think it's a, it's a, it's a combination that poses risks, particularly at a time when the United States, at least relative to, uh, to China, is... Is, is in decline. I'm not suggesting they're about to disappear, but they don't have the dominance either economically or militarily that they had 10 or 20 years ago. Has Putin bit off more than he can chew here? Will this change world order in any way or priorities? Well, I hope he's bitten off more than he can chew because I think he'd like to bite off more, digest Ukraine, and perhaps bite off another piece when he sees the opportunity. It was Georgia, then parts of Ukraine, troops in Moldova, Syria, um, uh, this is a very ambitious guy who sees things in strategic military terms like a good KGB officer, which he was. Um, I'm hoping that this will be too much for him to, to manage. In the back of my mind, this may be too optimistic by half or by 100%, but the Afghanistan war, the Afghan war, was a crucial factor in bringing down the Soviet Union, the expanse, the loss of life, etc. Uh, you can see already that not every Russian's in favor of this war, if, and this is really hopeful speculation, if this war and its difficulties, economic and, and military, uh, were to uh, weaken Putin's position domestically in Russia, I'd see that as a good thing. Gordon Holden with us, director of the China Institute and professor of political science with the University of Alberta. Gordon, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Yeah, the same to you. Thank you. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Olympics have been over for uh, a few days now, ended over the weekend. And did you watch? Did you watch um, as much as you normally do? Did you not watch at all? Uh, it turns out that this Olympics, uh, NBC, uh, who had the rights in the United States, CBC, of course, here, um, 42% drop in the viewership of the Olympics compared to the last Winter Olympics. To talk more about this, Robert Thompson is with us, trustee, professor of television, radio, and film, director of the Blyer Center for Television and Pop Culture at the Syracuse University, and with us now. Robert, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I hope you are, too. Thanks so much. Uh, how do you explain the drop in ratings? Have uh, have our have our attitudes changed about the Olympics? Well, a litany of explanations, of course, have emerged. The time difference, uh, big time difference, but we've had many, many Olympics with much higher ratings that have also had b- bigger time differences, including mm-hmm. one in Beijing. Uh, the fact that it's the second Olympics in six months. But that's happened before as well. Uh, Summer Olympics and Winter Olympics used to be synchronized until not that uh, uh, long ago. Uh, The cloud of human rights and other issues hanging over the host nation. uh, And, of course, the all-purpose explanation for anything that happens in the 20s, COVID. Stands are empty. Athletes are uh, uh, be masked uh, as scores are revealed. No emotional hugging tableau of friends and family. And of course, down here, all that NBC commentary coming straight out of Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, But Hmm. I don't think that's really uh, that is the major explanation. I don't want to explain uh, downplay the seriousness of the objections about uh, uh, China. They are very important, but I don't think they account for the significant numbers that aren't watching the games now that we're watching the last time around. And as for the doping scandal, if anything, that may have added some voltage to an event like women's figure skating uh, for all the wrong reasons that final uh, was one of the most remarkable Olympic TV moments, especially in the winter, uh, since what Tanya and Nancy had their face off in mm. 1994. So I think the big reason for these numbers are that every year, every minute these days, more and more people have more and more choices. They're getting mm. uh, what Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus launched in 2019 since the last Olympics, HBO Max in 2020, Discovery Plus in uh, uh, 2021. So people have got a lot more choices. Uh, One of those choices, of course, was uh, Peacock uh, watching Olympics. But that, I think, explains uh, these lower ratings um, more than anything else. Uh, Sports has always been pretty good for uh, the traditional medias, though. Are you surprised that even, and it makes total sense, you've got, you know, so many eyes and so many things to see. Uh, That being said, does this still have the impact, the the Olympics, does it still have the impact it once did? Well, uh, no, insofar as fewer people are watching. It It is not as central uh, to the culture. Uh, When I was a kid, the Olympics would come on, all the other channels would show reruns, and you Mm. would watch the Olympics. There weren't that many choices, so it became the thing uh, everybody was uh, talking about. But those days began to disappear when cable kicks in, and streaming has certainly uh, put a period to the end of, uh, uh, of that sentence. But we shouldn't overstate 
uh, a lot of these stories that uh, the, the Olympics are over, this was a disaster, uh, and all of that kind of thing. Uh, indeed, uh, down over 40% uh, 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 since 2018 is, uh, uh, is pretty um, uh, significant. Um, and, and NBC down here is paying $1.3 billion every two years through 2032. We don't know yet if they've made a pro uh, profit with these lower ratings this time around. They've had to make do uh, and make good uh, with advertisers. But we'll see how they uh, adjust that. But even with the average rating of 11.4 million viewers, uh, as opposed to 19.8 last time, that's a big decrease, but it's still more viewers than we're watching anything else on television. They were still beating the competition. And uh, NBC uh, needs a lot of programming for Peacock. It's newly launched, and this uh, provided it. I think what's going to happen is expectations are going to have to be lowered. Um, that was my yes, next point. Me. That's That was my next point, Robert. Well, the prices go down. This isn't the golden goose that it once was. Even if you're hosting, uh, the cities That's aren't right. as interested as they once were. Well, the prices that uh, the IOC gets from broadcasters have to be adjusted. Well, they've got a deal to, down here again until 2032, uh, and, and I don't know how complicated that's going to be to say, oh, by the way, uh, we can't pay that uh, yeah. anymore. After that, of course, the calculus will be, uh, 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 will be adjusted. Um, uh, but, you know, 11.4 million, it's not the 19 million of last time. It's not the 30 million of ye olden days when that's what Olympics were getting. But 11.4 million watching uh, one set of programs these days is a lot of people. This is still a significant uh, uh, event. How these uh, you know long-term 10 more year deals are going to deal with the fact that uh, these ratings are going down as they're going down with everything sitcoms, award shows. The only mm. thing that ratings aren't going down uh, 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 with uh, substantially is the Super Bowl. That was, the next thing I was, that was the next thing I was going to say, Robert. What about the Super Bowl? Has it seen the same sort of decline? No, it hasn't. Uh, the Super Bowl had a, uh, uh, a lower year uh, last year, and by lower, I mean 96 million viewers. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that it broke a record at about 114, I think it was, and it came very close to that, but didn't beat it uh, uh, this time around. The Super Bowl seems to be in a class all itself, and I think that's because it's center, uh, central to a, uh, a holiday. It all happens in one day. Uh, people plan Super Bowl parties. Uh, they look forward to not only the game, but the advertisers, the halftime show. Super Bowl seems immune to the onslaught of the infinite choice that streaming has brought us. But everything else, including other sports except football, um, you know, baseball is uh, down. Uh, when you've got, uh, when you had a few few different channels to watch, you didn't have that many ways to slice the pie up. Now you, you can barely count the number of choices mm. people have, especially if you're lucky enough to be able to afford uh, a lot of subscriptions. Good point. Robert Thompson with us, trustee, professor of television, radio and film, director of the Blyer Center for Television and Pop Culture at Syracuse University, talking about Olympic ratings this year. Robert, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks very much.
any excuse to bring Eric Thomas on and talk racing is good by me. And this is uh, bizarre because it ties into the headlines of the day in regard to the Russian invasion of Ukraine as a result of this. Uh, and there's lots of sanctions and lots of um, uh, fiscal pressure being put on Russia. Uh, F1, Formula One, is doing the same thing and has canceled their race coming up this year in Russia. To talk more about this, Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network. You can hear it every Sunday night right here on CHML. He's with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, we're good, uh, and happy supper hour to you, too. <laughs> Back at you. What, uh, are, you surprised? are you surprised that F1 has reacted this way and so quickly and pulled out of this? No, I, I'm not. Uh, this has kind of been bubbling ever since the invasion took part, and uh, the Russian Grand Prix that is scheduled for September, the 25th of September, was kind of hanging in the balance. It, it kind of started to reach critical mass when the defending champion of the series, Max Verstappen from Holland, or the Netherlands, if you will, uh, was saying that if this race, the Russian Grand Prix in September, is still on the schedule, I'm not racing it. And then four-time champion Sebastian Vettel, who's a German, Mm-hmm. Uh, said exactly the same thing. He said, "These this is a travesty. Uh, this, this should not be happening. Uh, Putin and the Russians should not be doing what they're doing. There's no way I can, uh, in good conscience, race in that country. And uh, they had an emergency meeting last night. They're testing in, in uh, Barcelona, Spain, at Catalonia. And they had a, an emergency meeting last night and then decided in the early hours of this morning, our time, to indeed remove the September 25th Russian Grand Prix from the the F1 schedule. So I, I'm thinking that if Max and and Sebastian were the two drivers very vocal right off the bat, there would have been more drivers as this thing went on, if indeed F1 delayed this. But no, they've done the right thing and and they've called this off. So uh, yeah, that, that's the situation. And uh, and who knows what other sanctions. There's a few other little bits here, but uh, you probably have another question there for me. So fire so, like this is no little dog and pony show. This is no. a big, expensive event. How much does this cost? How much would we are are some set to lose here? Yeah, the the way the structure goes, and you know the way the structure goes. And for those who don't, what you basically do, and, and it it hits the sponsors and the race teams because part of this is the the U.S. Uh, American owned team. Sorry, the Haas F one squad have dropped the Russian sponsor, uh, Euro uh, Cali. They make potash and fertilizer. They're the main sponsor of the team. And uh, the, one of their drivers in Nikita Mazepin, who's Russian, his dad, Dmitry, owns that company. They've removed the logo from the race car, at least they did for testing. And I suspect it'll be that way for the balance of the season. What happens is when you go to a sponsor, you, you tell them, okay, we're going to run Formula One this year. We're going to have a record 23 races. And it is worth this amount of money because we're going to be playing in front of this many people in the grandstands, this many people watching on TV, et cetera, et cetera. So the return on investment for the sponsor is for 23 races. Suddenly, you've only got 22. Now, we know it's it's humanitarian in in, uh, yeah. in, in its push, in its route, and, and they did the right thing. But that's where the rubber meets the road in terms of budgets and sponsorships. You know, it's something that's unavoidable when you're working with a global championship they race in in a whole lot of countries around the world a lot of their drivers are from different countries around the world this is bound to happen when you have something like this so that's basically where the financial part of it hits is when the sponsors are involved with teams and in this case you know even even Mazepin the driver maybe his future with the team that's being discussed right now uh, even replacing him and not allowing him to race in Formula One at all 
So, mm. you know, this is maybe the thin end of the wedge scooter. We may be seeing more sanctions before we're all done with this. So is this race postponed? Is it rescheduled? Or will it be back on the schedule next year? Or is that all uh, to be determined? Good question. Good question. That was the one thing that F1 kind of left open on the back end of their statement is that it indeed is gone for this year. Could it be back next year? That's a possibility. The other thing that was talked about, although F1 has denied this, is that they may bring Turkey back and substitute that for the September date for the Russian Grand Prix. But Formula One has denied that, too. So we'll see what happens. Let's just deal with this year. I mean, this is an atrocity what the Russians have pulled in the Ukraine. And, and, and you know, you can't take that away. But that race is gone this year. Will they try it next year? If there's a new regime in Russia. I don't know. I can't answer that. And I can't answer that right now. Uh, obviously, uh, there's a certain amount of, pub- of publicity that a city gets from hosting such a race. These sure. are not easy races to get. They're very, very, very difficult. Uh, yeah. Will it be a hard hoe for Russia to get back on in good books with F1? It could be, unless they pull back out of the Ukraine and restore the border and stop this nonsense that they're pulling here. Uh, don't know. Again, that's a that's a question that that Formula One and uh, and the government in Russia, you know, come next year needs to make a decision on whether or not they're willing to overlook this. It's not the only time either that Formula One has been questioned about racing in places that don't have very good records in terms of um, human rights, racing in Saudi Arabia, some of the countries in the Middle East, their their human rights violations are well known. And Formula One comes under constant uh, criticism for running in those countries. So this is so you know, and you bring up you bring up a very valid point, Eric. I mean, and they've gone gone ahead and run these races no matter what. So why the position change with Ukraine, or is they trying to set a precedence here that no, we're going to be. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, this this is war on, on a massive scale that could have global implications. I'm not trying to put words in F1's mouth, but this yeah. is a, a pretty serious situation. There's people dying in this. And, you know, with human rights violations, they are, too. Uh, but, you know, it, it, this is this is a, a war everyone can look at and look and see when what crimes are being committed here. Not to say that the crimes in those other countries are any less important or any less egregious. I mean, it, it's it's just a, a, balance, a balance, I guess, that everyone's going to have to look at it. They're going to be a global championship. They're going to go where there are races to be had. And let's 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 be honest. If there's a if there's a, a there's a massive sanctioning fee that F1 demands from all of these countries, and if, if they're going to come up with the money, uh, they're going to race there if at all possible. Now, you know, F1 gets criticized for that as well. Is it the almighty dollar? Well, in the end, in most aspects, yeah, it is. But I mean, this is a you know, this is a human rights and and human lives up against the almighty dollar. Now, it sounds kind of cold, but this is something that a global championship is, you know, the World Cup of Soccer deals with exactly the same thing, exactly the same kind of stuff. So, you know, you've got to sort of look at your business plan. And if you're going to be global, you're going to run into this political stuff. And it's, it's just about unavoidable. Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network, heard Sunday nights right here at CHML and F1 pulling out, uh, pulling their race out of Russia for this year. Eric, thanks for the time. Be well. Always enjoy it, Scooter. Take care. We'll do it next time, pal. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.